Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Diplomacy, courage, and, uh, and, and grit to be able to have the kind of influence that you feel that you're going to need to be able to get your dreams um, accomplished in this country. And I think that's true of every country, but I will speak for the experience here. You have to stay with it. So two questions come to mind. What part of India is Mother Teresa from? Is she from the Western side as well? She's actually not Indian. She's, uh, she's from Eastern Europe, uh, but her work yeah. is in Calcutta. I know. I learned so much. Um, she, I, uh, her work is, uh, originates from Calcutta, so from the other side of the country. Wow. And I think all this time I always associated her with um, but that part of the world. Wow. I, I know I have to go read about her background <laughs> more. And she's um, like very Indian, right? Um, and, and she created the Missionaries of Charity. They're all, you know, they, they dress in saris and there's much of her, you know, just her organization and her expression of faith comes through uh, a lot of Indian culture. But you no, know, she's uh, she is from Eastern Europe. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Thanks for sharing. The second question is, in our previous conversation, we talked a bit about healthcare and just wanting to put a plug here, if you can share about, you know, just your experience over the years in the healthcare system as a daughter of immigrants, what was your parents' experience? I know my mom has had her own experience trying to unravel or understand how to get access to the type of health, even though, you know, your parents are here legally, but so was my mom, all arrived to the country legally, but yet there is a challenge to have the full access to what is possible in the healthcare system here in the United States. It's such a great question. And I have to say, um, this is such a classic issue for those of us who work in health to connect um, our work in health with being a consumer of healthcare, right? So the, my experience with the healthcare system and my ability to reflect on it now is one, you know, I'm trained in, the, in public health, but also work in the healthcare system. But it's only in my experience through my parents particularly that I've actually seen the healthcare system and ex truly experienced it um, as a consumer. And particularly as one, uh, you know, with, uh, where English is a second language and, and for the immigrant experience for them. And I, I just have to say it is not built for us yet. Um, uh, that's, the, that's the bottom line of what, I, of what the experience has been. You know, for my father, he had early onset dementia. Um, to be candid, our, our Indian community was not ready for it either. When he had it, he was... Uh, you know, he was a champion of champions. He was very, very well regarded in, in his business community as well as in the, in the Indian community. And it was hard for people to accept. It's hard for anyone to accept uh, when you start to see 
um, these strong people fade when anyone fades. Um, and then, and for, for both of my parents being among the first waves of Indians in this country, they, it was hard. They hadn't seen aging happen in front of them in the same way, right? We, my grandparents were in India. Um, they were getting older away from us and uh, it was managed through phone calls and telegrams uh, and, and sporadic visits. And so, you know, we were surrounded by others in our community who also didn't see their own parents age in front of them. And so getting help was hard. Um, it was hard because no one knew how to navigate it. And so when it was dementia, that's, you know, with all of the issues around mental health as well, it had a specific set of issues around it. And then with my mother's situation, she had multiple cancers and uh, a very complicated lung condition. And that was a chronic, uh, both of them were in chronic, um, in, in chronic illnesses, uh, one of them at home and the other in assisted living. Uh, my father eventually, uh, when my mom's complications were, were picking up, we needed to make a very hard decision and put him in assisted living and memory care. And again, uh, the system is not set up uh, for people of different cultures. Um, very specifically, I'll say where it falls is um, terminology and uh, the way that family can get involved and whether, they, whether we can be involved is, uh, is uh, an issue depending on what part of the system you're in. Um, you know, many times in order to make a decision for the person, um, that we're caring for, you need a few people involved. And the way the healthcare system is organized right now, it's improving quickly because of COVID, but before COVID, um, it was very difficult to have the time and the space to, ha to have the situation explained in different ways so that a family could make um, a decision that they fully understood. You know, I was just on a, on a call the other day and someone was talking about health literacy and no one mentioned that if English is a second language, um, you have to consider that as a part of literacy period, but then health literacy on top of that. Do we really understand what's happening with our health and what, what um, you know, people within the health system are trying to explain to us? And do we have the confidence to even ask? You know, my parents came from, um, from a belief that, that doctors, the, hier the medical hierarchy knows the best. And so you never asked or challenged what a doctor was saying. And yet, we need to understand what's going on. And so um, changing that dynamic has been, has been challenging. And taking care of my mom at home specifically over the last three years, and, and again, because of COVID, we were on lockdown because she, had, she was on oxygen before COVID um, hit. And so we, I was her greatest risk. I, uh, there was no way that I could be out in the world. Um, and if I had come home with COVID, it, it would have been a high, very high risk situation for her. We didn't have care at home in a routine and consistent and quality way for three years because of how challenging it was to bring someone into the household. Um, we didn't understand, and here I am, I work in healthcare. I didn't fully understand how um, healthcare is organized and who pays for what so that you know what you need when the time hits. So I might've had all, everything we need um, from an insurance perspective, but knew nothing about home health systems, home health care agencies, hospice, all of those parts of care are not at all um, discussed in our Indian community to the extent that it needs to be, nor are the providers of care aware of the cultural needs that we may have or the religious needs that we may have um, in these stages of care. My dad, it was very similar. He was in memory care, but it was a, it was a, a you know, we were minority in that situation. 
um, we're we're Hindu, and uh, it was a, it was a Christian focused um, memory care facility. It wasn't it wasn't promoted as such, but there was Sunday service. There was a lot that happened with the generosity of the of the Christian faith. But my for my dad, I remember he had to color. They did different art projects. He had, they had I think it was around Easter, and they needed to color uh, a picture of Jesus. And my dad um, found a way to hide an omen there as he was coloring. Um, and it went back to having a voice, as I was saying before, they both did. Even when he didn't, he found a way to still push forward the fact that, sure, I'll do this. But just know that I'm Hindu. And your Jesus will still have our, our om on him, right? And he did that. And Wow. Even, right? though he was, even though he was ill, he figured he was he still lucid enough to do that. Oh, yeah. My goodness. Um, isn't it something? And, and that voice still comes, comes out in me as we were organizing care for my mom. And it was especially hospice. And folks were coming forward to us and explaining, you know, the range of services. And they, you know, often would bring up chaplains. And I would have to say, listen, we're Hindu, so I'm not sure that a chaplain is going to be as helpful to us. What I need to make sure you know is, do you know that there are, you know, X number of Hindu temples in our area? Do you know who's in those temples to come help us? And they didn't. So that was an issue when... My mom uh, was in the hospital and same thing when the chaplain would come visit and she would have her conversations with him. She would do the same thing. So back to having a voice, she, she would come right out and say, you know, she was very open to talk. We were a very open family. So of course we would talk to anyone of faith and um, she would, you know, they would ask if it was okay. She was more than happy. She learned, she educated them back. But then she also would say, you know, I'm, I'm open and able to have this conversation and I, I speak English. But look at how many um, Hindus are probably in this hospital. Uh, have you had a relation? Have you set up a relationship yet with the with any temple so that one you can bring them in with you or have them come? Because not everyone here is going to be comfortable having this conversation. Uh, and she tried, right? And so each round of this, both of them tried in their own way. I continue to try. I'll have a, a lot more advocacy in this space. I hope in the future because it's time for this to change. Uh, and so much of the system, um, so much of how we engage with the system needs to change. So we have to take our responsibility and feeling confident to ask questions, feeling confident to ask for certain things. Um, but also the system itself needs to be modernized to who is actually using it now. And I find it even more uh, compelling when you know that so many people who actually work in the clinical side of care are from India or South Asia, and yet they themselves may not have had influence to change the system they're in, right? Um, if you're going in and you're in a hospital and you see that you've got a range of food options, and, and yet so many of us have probably experienced an Indian restaurant by now, you know, just having one or two that actually reflect the cultural experience of who's there and there are healthy foods that you can do that with would be helpful. When we came home, um, you know, one of the her, her Medicare providers offered free meals at home for X number of days. Um, I would call the service and would try to ask for vegetarian options. It would be close to impossible. I tried to ask for Indian options, and I got much more again stronger in my voice after the third time she'd come home with this with this benefit, quote unquote. And actually, had talked to the provider and said, if I can get a if I can get an Indian meal on my airplane. When I get that option offered to me from Delta or United, 
I know that that packaged food exists and someone's creating it at scale. There's no reason why that can't happen here as a part of an insurance plan or the rest. And yet it hasn't happened yet. So there's so much more that we can do to actually, again, modernize the various offerings that are there in, in the healthcare system beyond the medical ones. Um, and right now, everyone is pushing fast on what the, you know, what's termed as the social determinants of health. Those social determinants of health are not just for the poor, they're for all of us. And so how do we think about that? You know, how, you know, where do we go to get the social support we need? And how do we organize for that? Um, and integrate it inside of the system that exists versus creating a parallel system, which I know we, we have. Um, but until we are able to influence the larger system, you know, it, it's not going to feel like we belong until we are able to influence the larger system and be heard in that system. And so I do know that uh, that's something that, that needs to change. And I've certainly had just offline conversations with some of the, the insurance providers who offer Medicare Advantage and all of these plans to say, you realize if you did offer three or four different things, you would probably capture a competitive base of people because they want those things and no, none of your competitors are offering them that. And it will be, it would be a good business option if you were to think of it that way, but it'll take time. It'll take time. Right, right. Thank you for that perspective. It's, it was an important one to hear and thanks for speaking to that. So as you went along your career path and then for our listeners, I'm wondering if there were any opportunities that came along to help you uh, get through college, for example, scholarships, any particular funding opportunities that might be helpful to people who may be listening in for nuggets like that? You know, I, um, I benefited from the Pell Grants and the variety of financial aid vehicles that were available to me through the university. So I, because of, um, you know, we did fairly well as a, a family, my father, you know, where he was at and what was happening from an income perspective there, and there weren't as many Indians yet. Um, there weren't any specific scholarship opportunities that were there just for me. Uh, you know, I did, like I said, we, we worked hard to make sure that I benefited from as many financial aid opportunities as, as possible. And um, you know, I know that those are becoming more and more limited in terms of what's offered publicly, but that's how I was able to get through school was to really look at every possible means of um, financial aid and less so from scholarships and more so from um, you know, low interest debt that I was able to participate in. And luckily, you know, I was employed very quickly and was, and it took, you know, I spent a long time to pay off those debts. Um, but that helped me also think about how to, how to consider um, balancing, you know, the various ways of getting financing and how to get myself back on my, and, and be on my own, again, back to what my dad had always wanted to make sure I was ready to do, which was, uh, would be on my own. So I don't have as much to offer in terms of specifics around scholarships. Um, I would say look at what your own community offers. Um, look at what you offer beyond your community that can be viewed as unique in applying for scholarships. I, I just know this from a professional side that when you're applying for things, you've got to separate yourself in a way so that, it, that you're the best candidate for what you're doing and, and to explore all of those opportunities that are there and not assume that you're only going to be considered based on you know, a certain set of traits or a certain family background. It could be that you're an ideal 
match for, um, for a scholarship opportunity based on what you're interested in doing, right? And many other things. So I think some of your other listeners may have more to offer on this, but I, I would just say be creative and start early. I was limited, and I hate to say it this way because I honor my parents so much, but I was limited based on the range of experiences my parents had. And because of that, simple things like knowing that um, PSATs isn't just a practice SAT. That's what I thought. And because of that, I didn't do so well on my PSATs. And that meant that limited the number of scholarships I could have. And they didn't know, so I didn't know. So, so much of it is just keeping your, your, your eyes wide open to making sure that you're hearing everything um, that's out there to make sure that you exploit every possible experience you can. Right, right. Good, good, good point, uh, Pudity. It's interesting. I, 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 I've heard you said a few times that, you know, there weren't many Indians back then. But from the time I've been here, I've only noticed, you know, and you know, num- I, 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 I want to say a noticeable number of Indians around. So that's interesting. When did it change? Do you think it's the the work opportunities, H-1B, or was there um, historically in immigration for the United States, was there like a big change? Why? Because the population is quite sizable. I want to say in the area that I'm in, in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I think H-1B, absolutely, right? And, uh, and the specific segments that tend to bring you know, I hate to feed a, a stereotype, so just excuse me if that's what I'm doing here, but it, what we do know, we see a large number of um, folks that come over with an IT background, right? Um, some specific, as you know, from the history of immigration for this country, it's for specific uh, roles and needs and capabilities that pull people in from a particular area. Um, and so there was a boom of that in the 80s late 70s and 80s. So if you think about when my parents came, it was pre-civil rights, right? So even the, the, the situation that we were in was very different. Once civil rights changed and you saw a need for certain segments of, um, you know, of expertise, H-1B visa for sure um, opened the door for so many. And you see a lot of that. I don't know, and I, I would be the one to ask, you know, how many citizens are here? Um, and green card holders and H-1B visa holders. Like if we were to see a graph of that across a variety of ethnic groups, that might tell a different story. But you're seeing a lot of folks now, and, um, and I do think H-1B visas have a lot to do with it. Um, and just, you know, what's been happening with call centers all around the world. There's an inner relationship between India and a lot of industries, um, and not just India, but a lot of Asia and uh, a lot of industries um, because of what you're able to do um, in a 24-7 um, life cycle now, when you need people all around the world every day, you're, a lot of companies have figured out how to, how to balance that out. And so I think we've gotten accustomed to seeing a lot more Indian people here because of the industries that have brought them here. Right. And then because the country too, and, and some countries on that side of the world, has a large English-speaking population, right? So it's easy to tap into that for some companies, right? For the call yep, center that absolutely. you mentioned. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, India also went through um, you know, a globalization of its own, right? There was a time, like I mentioned, when my early years of going back to India, you wouldn't, it wouldn't, be, you wouldn't find a Coca-Cola, right? Things changed. They, they opened up. 
And once that opened up, things became more porous in both directions. And so you see um, certainly much more um, openly English, you know, you, a lot of people were speaking English even back then, but now much more formalized education um, around American English so that you can participate in the workforce here in some way, um, much more structured effort to help people come here um, in a very different way um, than when my father was trying to come here. And you have, and frankly, I think we also have to acknowledge that when, once you've got the first folks that planted the flag here from a family, others come. Um, so we certainly have had many more family members come after my parents got here. And, and with that comes even more growth of just people now knowing people and it makes it easier to come which is why I point to the first, first who come from your family as, a, as an important group to honor because what they're doing is very different um, than the next wave that comes after them. Right, right. Oh, that's very true. As I'm thinking about my next question for you is what were some challenges or surprises that your parents may have had or talked about when you were growing up in adjusting to coming from India, from the western side of India, from um, you mentioned farming, agriculture, and now being in a completely different uh, world in the western world. What, what were some challenges that, you know, for maybe for you or for your parents that you guys had to adjust to and how challenging was that? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think language, of course, and some of the obvious things, um, food and language always come up. Um, it was, it's so funny when you hear that question now, because I don't, they rarely spoke about things as challenges. Oh. You know, it's, it says a lot about that generation. They will quick to talk about the joy they found in solving for things, right? So if they found a challenge, because mom would often say, you know, we didn't have Indian grocery stores yet. So we had to figure out how to make the foods that we miss by repurposing a Campbell soup, pea soup, right? For lentil soup that we're used to, right? Dal. Um, or figuring out, you know, how they often would tell the story of not realizing the concentrated orange juice, you know, the, the frozen cans of orange juice that we may have all grown up with um, that you would thaw and then add water and now you have orange juice. They, it took them a while to realize that no, that you actually did have to add water, um, that that wasn't just orange juice, right? So there's so many things about how products were put together and how to, how to turn that into the meal that they're used to um, and how you would learn from other people in the community that, you quickly didn't worry about whether someone was from South India or North India. You're just so happy that there were other Indians, um, you know, that, you know, they would turn these things around. And, it, and your question is so interesting because I can't come up with a lot of challenges, but I can certainly come up with a lot of solutions because of what they would have to do. You know, you knew that someone found, you know, you know, the perfect kind of flower in some shop that was on the other side of town. And the way you knew that was because you quickly had to come up with a network and trust it because um, you were now the minority, right? I, the thing that I'm learning for just in now, even for myself and I reflect today on the numbers of Indians who are here and very successful Indians who are here now, right? Who've first, as first generation have hit the highest amount, you know, levels of success. You know, I do reflect on what it must feel like if you're the majority and you've been the majority in all you're growing up until you're an adult and then you come here. 
versus when you're raised as the minority. And so the Indian experience that I would have, that I do have today and how I show up today is entirely different from a peer or a colleague or um, a neighbor who is maybe even my own age, but has immigrated to the United States as an adult. Because I've seen that, I just noticed it, how they come into work and into situations with a higher level of confidence than even I would have today. Because I've learned how to minimize certain things as a minority here. And I've learned it as a baby, as a child. And so I notice how people are getting things done in a different way. And I reflect back to how my parents were navigating and they had a little more courage in that because again, they were coming in having been of the majority and now trying to figure out, all right, well, I still need to get this done. How do I, how do I solve for the problem versus diminishing yourself so that you don't, aren't viewed as the problem, if that makes sense. You're still out, you're very out solving the problem. And they did. Um, they felt lonely, of course. It was difficult to go to, to India as often as they would like. They, my father often felt, um, and my mother, that they were, um, you know, that they were cast aside or pushed aside in, in the neighborhood or in, um, at work. But the way they solved it is what I remember. Um, people would, they were the first to invite people home. Even when mom and I relocated back to the Twin Cities eight years ago, and, you know, I came back at a different level in, in, a comp- in a local company here, and I was trying to adjust again and going through so much. The first thing she said is, you have to bring people home. I said, I'm not bringing anybody home. Are you kidding me? She, and we live in a very modest home here. And I said, I, I don't think I would feel comfortable with that. And she said, it will not change until you show them that you're comfortable bringing them home. And from that, we started an annual Diwali event that every Diwali is, uh, is the festival of lights. Um, in yes. And it's usually in October, November, and it's our new year for Gujaratis. It's, it's the beginning of our new year as well. And that turned into an event that everyone would come to. Um, if anything that people are saying right now, especially during, you know, the condolences that people were leaving for my mom, um, people fairly significant locally would say, we will have to remember her. Uh, at Next Valley because she brought us all together. Absolutely did. And that ethic, I never had that, but uh, that came out of solving a problem because they were feeling isolated and they're like, well, you could either choose to stay isolated or figure out how to bring people in. And who, and when, even when I struggled with the idea, she said, well, who would say no to coming over? And I said, well, what if I don't want them there? And she's like, but that's what they're feeling. (laughs) And I said, that's true. She's like, and if they don't come, then you know. I said, that's true too. And like I said, that, and it's such a simple thing. Just open your home. So I've learned a lot from that. Like when you're feeling like, why am I not feeling included? It's a really important reflection on, well, have I included? And uh, that, that came from them. That totally came from them. I love the contrast that you made between folks who, migrate later in life and the confidence that they bring and the problem solving skills that they bring now living in a new sandbox, (laughs) you know, if you will, and versus, you know, growing up with it as a minority in a, in a country like the United States and how you diminish yourself to fit in, to not stand out so much, to not be a problem as you were expressing 
I, I love it. And I think I, I see it in my parents too, but I didn't realize it until I heard you just talk about it. And then now having a three-year-old, mm. my dream has always been to bring her back to Jamaica, to be raised in the environment that I was raised in. You know, race wasn't a conversation that we ever had, never thought of it until I was placed in another sandbox and realized that, oh, I'm different. And what does that mean? And what do people assign to me for the skin tone or the way I speak or the type of hair that I have? Mm -hmm. And so it concerns me because I'm like, she's growing up from so young, being exposed to some of these other social determinants of, you know, basically what people think that things mean based on how she is physically and so uh, it's another thing for me to consider as I decide am I going to remain here or am I mm-hmm. going to make that leap to put her in a different environment so wow it's uh, uh, it's I mean that's really powerful what you're saying too right when you have the opportunity um, and choice of where where you would want to raise your child I think I'm trying to think of how you know, how my parents felt is that they just always, my father never told his stories from India. Like whenever you would ask him about himself, he would, the first sentence, I came to this country in 1963. They are, they, they were rooted in whatever their dream was that they believed would not happen where they were. Right. And so much so that their story always began here. My mother, not so much. She would talk about the past, but my dad, it was always about the opportunity. And you know, it is true, the limits, they just kept turning it around, probably because they didn't feel that they could make the choice that you have in front of you with your daughter. I don't think they ever felt that um, they could make the choice to bring me back to India, for example, and have me raised there. I think they just felt that this was going to be better. Um, but I, I, I can see, you know, the way the world is today is very different Um in our options now, right? I, I'm limiting, I'm, I hesitate finishing that sentence because I have to think back. I mean, yeah, pre-civil rights, is the world really all that different today than then? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think we see a lot more now, you know, in a lot wow. of things, right? I mean, I just, in saying that out loud, I had to stop myself and say, well, it is hard. It's hard. I'm in, I'm in the back, you know, I'm in the, the town where George Floyd's murder happened and put in front of us what we all saw in footage then. You're, so, you are living in that part of the country, aren't you? Yes, I am. Oh, wow. And that opened up that. all yes. sorts of conversations between my mom and I. That opened up the conversation. I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. It took that murder to open up a different conversation with my mom, right? We come from the caste system. Caste, Isabel, um, I can't remember, I think, um, her book, Caste. That uh, opened up even more conversation between my mother and I. I read it in a in a two days and it took her longer, not because she wasn't a fast reader, she was an avid reader of English books. Um, but uh, it was harder for her because you had to embrace what was going on in the caste system in India and then look at what's going on here and colorism exists for us as um, deeply exists for us. Beauty is inside of fair skin. Um, everything about color and hierarchy shows up in our society as well. And, you know, just the overlay that was happening in that book was really important. And that opened up a whole conversation. All of that, um, it was George Floyd's murder that, that started a lot of discussion. It helped me see what my father was involved in um, in the early 70s when we were here and his role um, 
and he was a, um, a, a general manager of a manufacturing plant for a large company here at the time. And in, um, in North Minneapolis, um, you know, part, a part of town that uh, is often spoken of. And um, he led a manufacturing plant uh, together with another South Asian leader who was Muslim. And my dad being a South Asian leader who's Hindu. And these two men who probably never would have worked together in India, coming from two different faiths, were wow. leading this manufacturing plant filled with African-American um, uh, co-workers um, across three different shifts of work and was underperforming. And they turned that plant around to being um, a high-performing, safe environment. And they became community with, with the community in North Minneapolis. I didn't even know that story until George Floyd was murdered. Wow, and really? I ignored so much of the storytelling when I was young, right? And I knew I visited that plant, of course, as a kid. And I loved it because we got to go to McDonald's when we did that, right? Like, those are the memories in my mind. I didn't know all of that. And that story, my, my dad's name isn't in it. My uncle, who also led that with him, their names aren't in it. But two weeks after George Floyd's murder, the Star Tri Minneapolis Star Tribune um, told the story of that manufacturing plant because of how, how communities can change, but sometimes it's hard to hold to that change. You know, the, they turn that, that, uh, that manufacturing plant around, uh, but eventually that company was sold off and, and you just don't feel that change anymore. Like how many times people have tried and things have changed. Um, I think all of that comes into the very simple statement of my mom's like, you have to bring them home. If you don't bring other people home, how are they going to know who you are? Right. They've been doing that all along. And right. uh, I didn't realize. Wow. So, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot. Wow. The whole idea of distance, you know, ignorance and, and when you're distant from something and you don't know it. And she knew that once you brought somebody just to experience and see how you live, that, you know, we could see that we're just human beings all just living, passing time mm. the best way we knew how, right? Right. And then it, and then it takes some of the edge off of the stereotype of what people are going to assume about you. Right now, there's many more stereotypes of people who look like me because there's so many more of us, right? Those are all good things on one level. But on another level, it's like, well, no, I'm, a, I'm my own human being in this experience. And again, it's true when you shorten the distance. And they taught me, and I agree now, that if you want this, the distance to get shorter, if you're the one who's feeling it, then you have to take the first step. You have to take the first step. I mean, how, the other person doesn't feel that distance. You do. Mm. So how are they going to know? And, you know, it's very vulnerable. It's very hard, but it's really true. Um, and so, you know, they, they, have, they were certainly known for all of that. And, and you see how community comes together more generally when it's when you're the one that takes the first step to to shorten that gap um it's very it, you see who shows up and who doesn't and you build a stronger community because of it so we yeah we've uh we've been we've benefited from the ability to do that i'm learning through that you know how to do that more um become i i wonder if the fact that i grew up here makes it a little more hard for me to do than my parents um because it, it's, it's a step. It's definitely a step to, to reach over and say, okay, why don't you come into my experience for a while? Right. 
That's that's so lovely. That quote, bring them home. I I've told two parts of my story where I talk about how because my family on both sides, my dad being one of eleven, my grandma mater, paternal grandma being one of fourteen, my mom being one of twelve, and also her dad also has a large family too on his side. But mm-hmm. our homes were always open to our community in Jamaica, and it has been here. I remember taking my friends from college home when we have dinner, and we would all, they live close by each other, 15, 20 minutes apart, and we would all come together for Christmas or whatever holiday we were celebrating here in the United States, and we would invite our friends from school. They would come in, they would spend the summer with us, or they would come over and have dinner with us whatever we cook, they, you know, the whole traditional jerk, jerk chicken or whatever we mm-hmm. have in our culture. And you open the world and you just, in, you know, you bring them home and, and mm-hmm. they get to know your family and they see how you are and how you interact. And it's very powerful to do that, right? Sitting, bringing somebody to the table to just break bread as, as somebody else would put it. Um, you're teaching us a very, or bringing to light, again, a very important lesson in bringing community and understanding among different groups here in the United States, which is so needed today. It really is. It really is. And right. I mean, you, you've been doing the same and, and some of it is in the richness of culture, but then you realize quickly, you know, it's really about expanding your definition of family. And the minute you start to do some of these things where people are brought home, you know, you start to show how you think about family and there's a part of, the openness to doing that is also an expression of not just of inclusion and belonging as in all the terms that we use today, but, but of a, a belief that your family can be bigger than just who you grew up with or just those who are of your, of your faith, your culture, your ethnicity. Um, and that all starts at home. And that's partly why, you know, kind of bringing it back to healthcare for me, that's partly why I believe that the way healthcare has been structured at home the reason, I mean, the reason why it's so broken, because we haven't experienced enough of each other at home to understand how to build it back up. And we're just now starting to because of what the pandemic has is, is, uh, shown us is that we're going to need to be able to take care of more at home. Well, you wouldn't be able to know how to build that for me unless I allowed you to be in my home, unless I exp- you know, exp- explained to you what was important to me or shown you what's important to me. And that all starts with, uh, with that 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 statement from my mom and, and the statement that you're saying about you have to be at the table together. You know, you need to come home. And once they see it that way, it will, you'll help shape it that way. It won't, right. I mean, I spend so much time complaining about it, right? And she's like, well, you know, help, you know, figure it out with that. Thank you for tuning in for part two of Puri Bat Story. Join us next episode for part three. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.